Welcome back to the peripheral. Sorry about the delay and release of this episode. Who knew that August would be so busy for me? Uh, I'm hoping to put out several episodes before the end of the month. So uh, I'll make up for lost time for everybody. On today's episode, as promised, I'm going back to a mental health issue. Uh, This episode is comparing the differences between grief and depression. And I am joined by Anne, who suffers a loss that no parent should ever have to go through. I don't know how to set this story up, so I'm going to go ahead and let Anne tell her story. So where, where are you from? Texas. Okay. Uh, Plano, north of Dallas. Awesome. I don't know if it's still, you're still doing mental illness, but boy, that can yeah. mess you up. Mental illness is, an, is going to be an ongoing thing i listened to the newest one this morning it was really good well thank you i like that uh i forget her name i can't remember names but uh, tiffany yeah yeah (laughs) she's uh it's really interesting because some of the things that she talked about i really relate to and some of the things my life is totally totally different well that's yeah and that's what the discussion's all about right (laughs) right right all right yeah yeah i wasn't really sure what you wanted me to exactly what you wanted me to talk about but uh i can just tell tell you about my story and yeah just see go from there well when i was a kid i was i lived in several different places in the south so i'm not really from quote unquote texas but uh I was always kind of an odd kid, and uh, and you look back on it, it's like, well, part of my problem was I had ADD, and I didn't, you know, they didn't know what that was back then. I was in elementary school. It was the late 60s, early 70s, you know. They'd never heard of that, so Mm -hmm. I just kind of daydreamed and stuff. I never really had any symptoms of bipolar. I think I started it when I was 13. My parents moved from a fairly large town to a really tiny town, that was not fun at all. I was, you know, anytime you do something like that when you're 13, (laughs) just being 13 is hard enough. (laughs) I moved from pretty much Los Angeles to Kansas City when I was 12, 13. So, yeah. (laughs) No, that's heartbreaking. Well, I was in Mobile, Alabama, which is a fairly large place. It had two universities. And I went to move to Camden, Arkansas, which, oh, my gosh, the nearest city was two hours away. It was if I hadn't met my husband there, I would just talk about how horrible it was. But I mean, the people were really nice and everything. But my family was kind of like very plain, you know, very sweet, very kind. Uh, You know, we have fights and stuff, but. But you know, when fa- I started fairly normal, though, <laughs> not somewhat normal. Yeah. I mean, probably even stricter than normal. You know, my parents, you know, for the 70s and stuff, my parents didn't smoke. My dad, he was, tried to be a, he was like an athlete in high school and he his parents smoked and drank a lot and partied a lot. So he he was kind of like the other way. And my mom was raised real strict and she didn't either. And they're both really quiet. You know, my dad had a temper, but. I did too, you know, and that's the way my mind started out where I just had a really hard time getting along with people because sometimes I'd have a horrible temper and then sometimes it would go away. And of course, I had no idea what was going on. Let's see. 
when I was in college, uh, well, you know, went through high school and college, and it was all just kind of the same thing. I was just getting along okay, but I would every once in a while just have these problems, and I didn't understand it. I had no idea what was going on. I got married, had uh, my first son, Will, in 87, and my second son, Andrew, in 92, and all this time, I seen, I guess, um, I'd seen a therapist off and on. Uh, I might have been to a psychiatrist by then. I don't know. I just was still struggling. And what, what were you like? What were the symptoms that you were going to see a psychologist for? I was really depressed. My husband was in the Navy and he was gone. The therapist said she thought depression had something to do with it. She was not the greatest therapist in the world. That's one of the things that I think is really hard is trying to find the right person to work with you. And just because you have a bad experience with one person does not mean you can't have a good experience with someone else. I always encourage people to just keep on trying. It's, I've had that problem. Did you have but, any, any issues after you had your children? Did you have any postpartum? Oh, no. That was one of the things that was really hilarious to me. You know, I think a lot of times people have it because they must feel trapped or something. But I was an engineer. I was working as an engineer. And I loved having my time off with my kids. Mm-hmm. It was just great. Now, you have to understand, my husband is a really great guy. I mean, he's one of the reasons I'm still alive, really. Uh, he was not someone who was like, you know, this house is a mess, or why haven't you gotten dinner on the table, and all that stuff that a lot of guys might be like. And I think a lot of women feel like they have to be, you know, the perfect homemaker as well as take care of this baby. And so that's really stressful. Now I can't say that, you know, after I went back to work, it was very stressful. Then when, when my son, Will was two weeks old, uh, we found out he had a heart defect hmm. and they said, well, you know, so you had, we had to go to find a, a pediatric cardiologist. So they said, well, uh, he has aortic stenosis, which is where your aortic valve is, is too tight. I don't know if you know very much about flow. I, I, I know a little bit just because okay, I well, have had friends um, with murmurs and Something stuff. is too tight like a hose. Yeah. You know, the, you can measure the pressure across it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, obviously, when anything's too tight in your heart, that's not good because you won't be getting enough blood flow. It also, if you think about like a hose when you, you know how it sprays a lot mm-hmm. when you're, well, it's easier for you to develop a blood clot too. It's putting additional stress on the heart also. Absolutely. You can, it puts additional stress on the heart. His heart got bigger. And the thing about this kind of problem is that it gets worse as it gets older because your heart is growing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, as opposed to if you're an adult and you have some kind of problem because your heart's not the same. So they had to just keep, oh, we had to just keep bringing him back and having him checked and, you know. He he would have uh, breathing problems sometimes that seemed kind of like asthma. He had pneumonia once. Then when he was four, he got really ill. We had to take him to the hospital, and you know, and I asked the emergency room doctor, "Well, does this have anything to do with his heart?" And they're like, "No, no, no. He just has asthma." But then I called the call cardiologist. She says, "Well, bring him in." 
they told me, well, he's going to have to have an operation. And at that time, they, it was really hard for them to work on kids with, uh, with heart problems. They, this was, when is it? It was in the early 90s. They just didn't have the kind of technology that they do Well, today. yeah, they didn't have the technology. Plus, they didn't have enough people who had enough experience. So my doctor's like, okay, you got to go down to Houston because we don't have anybody in Dallas who can do this. What happened was he had a catheterization. Catheterization's like on a bypass or something. Yeah. And that was just a horrible, horrible day when you're sitting there in the... Uh, I don't know if you've ever had somebody in the hospital, but you sit there and you just don't... Uh, you can, there's nothing you can do. You just got to sit there and wait. But it worked, and he was doing great. So then we had a four-year-old and a baby. I guess it was when, um, about a year later, when um, he started kindergarten, and my younger son was a little older. I stopped working for a while because I was just, I had a really hard time working. I really don't like people telling me what to do. That's not a very good, uh, useful skill when. Yeah. <laughs> When you're working in a company, I just find it, you know, probably because of the ADHD and everything, too. But I found it really hard to concentrate. I would get really depressed. I would have days where I didn't want to go to work. I would also have days where I was hypomanic. I have bipolar, too, also. And I heard a doctor describe it this way, that mostly you're depressed. And then every once in a while, you have this hypomanic episode, and then you, you're still depressed. So that's pretty much the way mine was. And I would get really angry. I would just fly off the handle and spend 30, 25, 30 years since that happened. But I just did not like working. Uh, I liked staying home with my kids. So we, I did that for a couple of years. And then, you know, my husband's like, you know, we really need the money. You got to go back to work. So did you quit your job or did you get fired? No, I quit it. Okay. So I had to find a, a new job. I had had a job, and so I quit that job and, you know, came along with him. Then a couple of years later, I had my son and then the other one. And then so I went back to work for a year, and I would cry just about every day before going to work. You know, it's not that I couldn't do the work. It's just that I didn't want to be there. I just felt like what I did didn't make any difference at all, you know. After a year, I guess he finally decided, well... We're going to be okay financially. So I decided I was going to have a different job because I wanted a job that meant something to me. So I started a master's degree in, in uh, speech language pathology, kind of where you do speech therapy with, uh, well, you can do any age, but I usually w I work with kids mostly. I still would have problems with other people, relating to other people. I was seeing a psychiatrist I'm not sure if I had a therapist at that time, but this psychiatrist had put me on just a little tiny bit of medicine, and I was sleepy a lot. Do you remember what he put you on that made you feel that way? It was a she, but I had been through several different, I guess by this point I had been through several different antidepressants. I know Prozac made me feel um, hypomanic all the time, and I couldn't concentrate. So then I went on to, um, let's see, Wellbutrin. Mm -hmm. which was nice, but um, I had an allergic reaction to it. I was having trouble swallowing. So I was like, well, I don't think I will do that one. It seemed like I did a couple others that just didn't work. And uh, I always say I never experimented with drugs until I started taking medication. 
then we started with Effexor, and it's really not supposed to make you sleepy. And so I said, you know, it's making me really, I think it's making me sleepy. So I had this really tiny dose that I was on, which uh, really wasn't therapeutic, I found out later. Well, what happened with that was it just wasn't doing anything for you? Um, I think it wasn't. I thought maybe it was. I, I wasn't really sure. I just felt like, you know, I'm just never going to feel normal or like other people. Never going to feel that way. Like I said, I was always angry. I was always griping. I liked the kids, but I just didn't like the system, you know. I left there like two years later or something. But then the next year, I ended up getting diabetes, which is runs in my family, so it's not really surprising. I just couldn't work full time. So we argued a lot about that. And finally, I found a, they gave me a part-time job. But then after that, I just quit. I couldn't take it anymore. Was this just because you you just did not feel any of the jobs you were doing or you just couldn't? Well, I like the kids, like, but I was really, really frustrated because if you work in a school, you have to be somebody who is full of energy, willing to work really, really, really hard because their caseloads are so high. There's so many kids and so many problems and you have all kinds of pressures on you. It's a very, very pressure-filled job in a school. I decided I wanted to work in a private clinic, and I found a job in a private clinic. By then, my son uh, was 16, my older son. He had been through, you know, several checks at the doctor. He had been doing great. He was, uh, we just let him do pretty much whatever he wanted to, except when he was in about third grade, we had to tell him he can't play competitive sports anymore because of his heart. And, he, you know, it was really sad to have to tell him that, but that was it. So he joined Boy Scouts, and he was really involved in Boy Scouts, and he was working on his Eagle Scout. He was done his project. He, he'd done just about everything there was. And he ended up having to take a summer class in PE. And every year I'd written to the PE coach and said, my son has a heart problem. He can't. The, the big thing about it is he could not let his heart rate get up above a certain rate because if he did, you know, he could die. He started a summer school, not his normal school. I mean, these were all people that were just working this particular class for the summer. I had written a note to the nurse, but I didn't write one to the PE teachers because, you know, I was just so blasé by that time that he was doing great. The second day of his class, they played um, they played floor hockey mm-hmm. in the gym. And hockey, strangely enough, he played roller hockey when he was a kid. He loved it. He, I had to tell him he couldn't do it. So, and I, I don't know what happened in the gym. Obviously, I wasn't there, but a friend of his was there. And he went and played hockey for a little bit, and then he sat down, and then he passed out. Oh, jeez. Basically, he was very close to dead he had a sudden what they call a sudden cardiac arrest which is different from a heart attack a lot of people don't know this but a sudden cardiac arrest is where your heart just kind of starts wiggling and it's not doing anything it's just spasming yeah that's when you have to you're supposed to use a defibrillator Mm -hmm. or sometimes there's certain kinds of vibrations where you can't use a defibrillator but they didn't have a defibrillator or they didn't know where a defibrillator was. Apparently, somebody had given the school a defibrillator, but it was locked up in a closet, and they didn't even know it was there. 
So by the time the uh, paramedics came, it was too late because you have to use a defibrillator within three to five minutes of when somebody goes down. You know, his friend was there and she and the nurse and maybe some other people I don't know were taking turns doing CPR. So they were trying their best to do what they could. But the paramedics got there. They took him to the hospital. By the time the guy called me, I was driving across town like, oh, my God, I hope it's just a heat stroke or something. By the time I got to the school, I saw, saw the the ambulance, and they were just like less than a mile from a hospital. So they took him right into the hospital. My husband got there, and, I mean, it's just a time that I will never, ever forget. They took me into the little room, and let me tell you, when they take you into the little room, there is never going to be any good news when they take you into that little room at the you, hospital. You, you knew. <laughs> you, well, I knew it wasn't good. We went in there, and probably about 15 minutes later, the doctor comes in and shakes our hand and says, you know, they were really sorry, but they couldn't save him. It was just surreal. It's like a television show or something, you know. We, we were, wow, we were just in shock. We had friends come and sit with us you know we spent some t- quite some time there i got to see him and i mean that's a scene i will never forget is seeing my son dead on a bed in a hospital room that that was just something you know you just never forget and my sister-in-law brought my other son yeah my younger son he was 12 of course he was just devastated he loved his brother you know he really looked up to him at that time, I was seeing a therapist. The psychiatrist I had was crap. And my therapist said the weirdest thing to me. He said, you know, you don't even seem depressed right now. You seem, you know, hyper or really agitated. You know, I'm like, yeah. The way I was dealing with it first, I was like, okay, my God, I have to make everything right for everybody. I cannot let my other son have a problem. He has to have a good life no matter what. You know, I thought I could, you know, praise mine. I thought I could protect him, you know. You were trying to take the burden of the world on to protect everybody else. Yeah, exactly. This grief, and of course, it's just really, really amazing grief. Devastating. It feels like someone has just taken this really sharp, clean knife and stabbed you right in the heart. That's the way grief felt. And then, but depression is so different. It's like... It's like poison or maybe somebody taking a rusty knife and stabbing you with that. It's very different. It's a dirty feeling. It's the dull. Yes, it's the dull ache and the apathy and the just not caring about anything. That's depression. And so it drives me insane when people don't understand what depression is because they really don't. I wish they had a different word for it. I really do, because it is not the same as grief at all. Well, what what you were suffering from right there was a circumstance, a situational event, a devastating event, as opposed mm-hmm. to a chemical imbalance or a uh, demotivation factor. Yeah. Or just an illness. I mean, yeah. that's the way I think of it. It's just an illness. Yeah. You know? There's something wrong with the brain. I don't think they understand it. And I think that's why a lot of people misunderstand it. I think there's a lot of way too many people who think that all you have to do is exercise and eat right and you're fine. Well, <laughs> I remember one point where I lost a bunch of weight and I was exercising all the time. 
And at one point, I was feeling so bad that I was convinced that there was that the exercise instructor hated me. And, you know, I was just really depressed and upset about it. And that nobody wanted me to be there and blah, 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 just crazy stuff because exercise, you know, it's not the end all and be all. I'm not saying it doesn't help. It's just a factor in in, in the overwhelming scheme. If If you're sitting on the couch not doing anything, totally depressed, and then you're out of shape or other things, it's just all... Can, it makes it worse. Yeah, but but it can't cure it. No, it, that that's the thing is it absolutely can make some people feel better. It's you know just like any of the the diets, you know the fad mm-hmm. diets that go out there. It works for this person, but it doesn't work right. for everybody. Well, and also making yourself get off the couch can take quite the crowbar <laughs> yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but I mean, I was I was exercising and stuff back then. And that was I think it was it was after I had my first son and before I had my second son. And it was just, they were, I was just nuts. I wasn't on any medication. I wish I had been. When you suffered the loss of your son, did you feel that feeling that grief, that pain without medication was better or worse? Do you think you had to go through that to, to I, mourn? Honestly, Let's see, it's almost 12 years since he died. He died on June 8th, 2004. I probably got, I think about six months after that, I finally found a decent psychiatrist, and I can tell you all about that later, but I've been on medication since then. And I can tell you that when I'm in a good place, I can I can feel stuff. You know, I feel grief. I feel happiness. I can feel things. And so the worst parts are when you just don't want to think about it and you feel bad. Or you, you just feel nothing, and you just don't care about anything, and you don't want to think about it. So I don't think the antidepressants are going to cure grief at all. I don't, I, unless you're someone who was triggered, you know, I think that, that they found that, that bipolar can be triggered. Mm-hmm. But unless you were triggered by a grief event and then it turns into depression, then probably they can help you. I, I worry about these people, so many people that go to their primary care physician and try to get medicine and they really need to go to somebody who knows what they're talking about because I finally got a re- referral to a really good psychiatrist and he diagnosed something else. He diagnosed that I had sleep apnea oh. and, you know, sleep can really screw you up. Bad I, sleep. If I don't go, I go two nights without sleep. I'm angry and upset and can't focus and demotivated. <laughs> I mean, right. Well, you put that on top of depression and ADD. I can tell you, you're just like a fog. So that was why I was really angry and stuff. And I was falling asleep. I was sleepy a lot. Well, it turned out it wasn't the effects or it was my sleep apnea. So he sent me to a sleep doctor. And if you have sleep problems, I cannot recommend a sleep doctor enough to get a sleep study. And then I got a CPAP machine, and that really helped. And I got on Lamictal, and I got on Effexor. It was not, has not been, you know, roses and everything after that. I've certainly still had to struggle, but... Uh, well, there's no magic it's, it's pill. so much better. There, there's no magic pill or silver bullet. It's just... No. You, you have to work on it every day, you need, and you have to upkeep every day, right. too. It's not... Right. 
Well, it gets you, what the medicine does is it gets you to a point where you can actually focus enough to work on your issues because everybody's got issues, you know. Everybody has a personality, you know, tendencies. Everybody has a different life experiences. Uh, so you have to work on your own personal issues that are still there once the bipolar, you know, even if you like say, if you break your leg, you know, you've got some certain problems when you break your leg. But when your leg is healed, all the regular problems you have in your life are still there. You got to get out of the wheelchair. You got to get off the crutches. (laughs) Exactly. So I found, like I said, I found the psychologist. I was still grieving. It was, I guess, the first year or two. It was like I could not stop thinking about what happened. The day he died, it was like it was in the front of my face. What I, I think of it is like, my working memory, it was just there. It was not, it did not pass back into my long-term memory. That's, that's what I've decided. It was just like always there in the front of my mind. You know, I was, I went back to work eventually. I, you know, I went through the day or whatever, but it was just right there until finally, probably a year or two later, it retreated to the back of of my mind in my long-term memory. It got easier. And now looking back on it from 12 years later, one of the things that someone said to me once was the most important. I think it was, it was, uh, grief is like a wave, waves on the beach. So they come up and you have a really bad one and then it retreats and then it comes back again. So the stages of grief are just really to me more just like the feelings of grief, you know, Mm. because sometimes you feel three or four of them at once. Sometimes you don't feel any of them. Sometimes, you know, you just feel one. I mean, anger. Oh, I was furious. I was just furious at the world because why did this happen to happen to my son? Did you want to lash out at the school with the anger? No, I wasn't angry at them because, you know, my son could have died on a Boy Scout hike. Mm -hmm. He could have died at our house. He did not I was telling him, you know, we're going to have to go back to the cardiologist. He hadn't been in three years. So he was like, what? Cardiologist? Why? Just like he was 16. He thought he would live forever, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't. I did write a letter to the superintendent of the schools. And I said, you know, I wish you would implement uh, training and also putting AEDs in all the schools. And they did that. It wasn't just because of me. Uh, there were some other people that were involved as well, but they did that. And now another friend of mine whose daughter died, uh, because of the same reason there was no AEDs around, she got the Texas legislature to pass a law so that anytime there's an athletic event or you're at a school, you need to have AEDs around. So now all the schools in Texas have them. Wow. Which is fantastic. And then I've met some really nice people and people are parents, you know, it's amazing. They have not, they just don't have very many statistics about this, about kids. You know, you hear about basketball players or something that just die quickly. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. They had some kind of undiagnosed heart ailment. One thing, one of the reasons that it's such a problem is that nobody's ever tried to correlate all this information before. The American Heart Association Never was interested in kids at all. Went on the the web in 87. 
Yeah. Anyway, there was no information about, there's not even any brochures or anything about kids with heart problems in 1987. Nothing. Not when, when my son was born. Even four years later, I did see one time, and I can't ever find it again, a letter, uh, memo within the Heart Association that said, well, now that more of these kids are living longer with their heart problems, maybe we ought to start looking into that as well. Wow. Because their, you know, their purpose for a long, long time was men with cardiovascular disease. That's all they were interested in. And that's, you know, they just pretty much said that up front. That was why there was a drive uh, to include women. And then later, now they have, uh, you know, a lot more information for kids. And they're trying to help kids too little too late as far as I'm concerned. But they don't devote near enough money. So a lot of parents, they actually started a group called Parent Heart Watch a couple of years after my son died, and I haven't really gotten that involved. Why? Because I'm still trying to deal with <laughs> my <Yeah>. bipolar. <laughs> so do you, you'd mentioned earlier that uh, bipolar could be triggered. Do you think that's what happened with you? Is this? Well, this... I think that it was triggered when I was 13. Okay. And I'd had dealing with it with a long time. That was why I was so angry all the time, mm-hmm. off and on. And so I think I definitely, it it was already full blown before my son ever died. I think that what happened after my son died was I was more, I just happened to look into finding a good psychiatrist and a decent therapist, you know, that really, really helped. Do you wish that you had sought out the therapist or therapy like sooner or do you just? Well, I kept trying. I mean, all through Ever since I was in my 20s, I kept trying to find somebody that would be helpful. And sometimes people were somewhat helpful. I tried, you know, group therapy, uh, individual therapy, different psychiatrists. It was just uh, hard to find somebody that was willing to listen to me. And this psychiatrist... You know, even though now I'm on a maintenance dose and I don't see him for very long, once a quarter, I see a therapist twice a month. You know, when we first started, he spent a lot of time listening to me and trying to decide if there was any other physical reasons. You know, there's all kinds of illnesses that can cause depression, like... uh, if you have uh, thyroid problems, you can have it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people that have had heart attacks can have depression. And it's a physical manifestation. It's not like it's, uh, you know, do you tell somebody with diabetes? Well, you'll just get over it. No. no. <laughs> well, that, that was something that Tiffany even said that she, in the beginning, she felt that she was just sick, you know. And then mm-hmm. she realized that the sickness, the physical sickness was all triggered by her mental illness. Right. Well, also, you know, they say after you've had a a really bad loss in your family that you're more often to get sick. And the reason I think is, and it's also true of depression, you don't care about yourself. You're not so interested in taking care of yourself, going to the doctor, making sure you're okay, eating right, exercising, uh, anything that makes you feel healthy. You might be into things that might make you feel good, which is sugar and alcohol and cigarettes or things like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, for me, it was pretty much food and, uh, you know, 
Well, I was drinking a little bit, but I never really had a problem with drinking, and I never smoked or did drugs or anything like that. You're lucky. <laughs> I know. I am, because, well, I self-medicated with caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> I still I, do that. But, but, but it, I just see an intertwining of of a pattern of mental illness, drug abuse, and yes. know, just all these things. It's usually intertwined, so for you to maybe just fall back on food or other things, but not alcohol and drugs is, I applaud you, because you... Well, <laughs> you know, I think that I, and I listen to Tiffany's story, and I'm telling you, I am so, so lucky. I have a family that even though they're not perfect at all, they're... You know, and in fact, we don't even talk about mental illness because I'm not sure they want to know anything about that. But they they do love me and they've always been supportive and they've been good role models. They never, you know, they might have drinks at a party, but they never did drugs. They never smoked. They never, you know, they were very, like I said, they're very quiet and laid back. I mean, they do their things, you know, but they're not going to be really exciting in a bad way. You they're kind of just square. <laughs> yeah, they're squares, yes. And my husband is very, very square. He was in the Navy. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He, he has his, the same issues I do, food and electronics. <laughs> he, he had his excitement in the Navy, and now it's all. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's funny. That's true, because he doesn't really like to travel that much, because he had to be in the Indian Ocean for, I think, two or three months. He doesn't understand a lot of what I'm going through, but he's really stable, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that makes so I've had all this stability in my life, and I, gosh, I think that makes a big difference. The people that you're around, if you don't see anybody doing drugs, you don't think of that as an option, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you don't see people drinking every night, then you don't really think of that as an option either. But ever since I got on this new medication, they said don't drink, and I was like, oh, okay, I won't drink. And you just followed the rules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sucks sometimes, but you know what can you do? Well, and I, the hardest thing I have following the rules is my diabetic diet. Oh, I'm really bad at that. Aww. But, uh, you know, at least I go to the doctor and get medications and stuff. So, Well, in, in some people, they can have bad habits with or without bad influences. But for the most part, what you surround yourself with is what you're going to do. And if you're, I think so. If you're surrounded by people that smoke cigarettes, you're probably going to smoke cigarettes or drink. Exactly. Whatever. Absolutely. Um, yeah, my grandmother and grandfather smoked like chimneys. Mm -hmm. My granddad used to smoke Havana cigars. <laughs> my grandmother smoked. But, uh, you know, my dad kind of went the other way. And I think there's uh, mental illness still uh, that was in the family. Yeah. You know, I, we don't talk about it. It was never diagnosed. You know, if you think about back in the t early 20th century, mid 20th century, nobody really, unless you were just like total wacko, they didn't... Uh, Nobody really thought about it. You just got along, you know. That's and, that's something that even me growing up, you know, a generation later than you, crazy was raving lunatic. It wasn't, right. you know, it was never deemed depression or the more what you would call subtle or milder uh, situations. Right. And, and, uh, well, it's the kind where you're mostly making yourself miserable and yeah. the people right around you miserable, but you haven't endangered anyone's life. You haven't endangered your life. I mean, I've felt suicidal before in the past. You know, you're not a danger to yourself or others, which is really important. And, and you may not be uh, 
hallucinating or having weird thoughts or things yeah. like that. I, I mean, that's the most I ever did was have bad thoughts. And mostly it's just about myself, you know. What do we consider a bad thought? Not wanting to go to work, not wanting to get off the couch. I think it's well, pretty bad. The bad thoughts that I have that I'd like to get rid of are things where I can think about something that I did, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and I still beat myself up about it. That's the kind of thing I'd like to get rid of. <laughs> I still do that, too. <laughs> I, I, it's not I, a good idea, though. <laughs> I, um, luckily, I forget a lot of things that I've done or things that people say to me or whatever. But I remember when I was a child or a teenager, a guy dropped his wallet and mm -hmm. I picked it up because I didn't think he I didn't know I didn't know the guy dropped it. I, I just picked up a wallet. I found a wallet. And then as I was leaving the mall or wherever I was, a guy confronted me and said, hey, did you find a wallet? And I said, no. And to oh. this day, I feel <laughs> horrible about this. This is like the only time I ever stole from like a person. Technically, I didn't take it from him. I found a wallet and then I just didn't tell him I had it. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, I cringe when I think about this story. Yeah, yeah. And now, I know. Well, I mean, I did stupid things. Like, I would just get really, really mad at people. Mm -hmm. And I would yell at them. And they were just looking at me stunned as though, you know, they'd been hit by a train. Because your your reaction to them is not yeah, exactly. equal to just whatever. Having, and I remember one time there was this little teenage kid riding his bike in our yard. And I was just screaming get out of my yard i mean it was just i mean it was comical really but i can't laugh at it <laughs> you know and i just anytime I've, I've done something that i feel like was really embarrassing or something like that i just so there's some nights that i cannot you know deal you, and of course anytime and yeah. i think about my son it's like you know should i, I should have taken him to the doctor sooner i should have asked him harder about how he was feeling and another thing that you know, right after he died, I was, I think one of the reasons I was so hypomanic is because I was like, okay, I cannot kill myself. I cannot kill myself. My son needs me, you know, and that has kept me alive so many times thinking about my kids needing me. I can remember when I was younger, I was feeling really bad. I just laid in the bed, gripped the side of the mattress and said, I cannot do this. I cannot kill myself because my, I cannot let my kids find me. If you didn't have your other children, do you think you would have gone? I think it would have been really bad. I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I hope that I would have been okay. Since then, it's like, you know, he's really helped me a lot. He's 24 now. Mm -hmm. And uh, just him being there has helped me a lot. You know, worrying about him. He's he's had it tough. He's had it really tough. He just felt a lot during high school that, he just didn't really, he felt lost, you know, mm -hmm. and I understand that because when you have a grief like that, that is so profound, you lose your sense of identity. I was the mother of two children. That was a huge part of my identity. So people could ask you, well, how many kids do you have? And half the time I'll just say, well, I had two kids. One of them died when he was 16 because I just cannot say that I'm a mother of one. It just when I first had to deal with this, I really couldn't say it, and I just couldn't even think it, and I had to think about, okay, what am I here for? What is the, you know, basically, what's the meaning of life? And You're, it was so hard, you know, and I was a grown woman, and then my 
son was 12, I can't even imagine, you know, what he was going through. Because you're already questioning yourself when you're a teenager. And so he's a very smart kid. He started college. And in the middle, he went missing for a couple days. And I thought I was just going to go off of my rocker because, you know, it was like, okay, one kid dies. The other one kid goes missing. Uh Uh-uh. And I was just losing it. Thank God we had a lot of good friends that helped us. And they put up posters all around the town where he was going to school and uh he saw one of them when he when he came to into a, a restaurant to get something to eat and she told you know the lady that worked there was recognized and she said you need to go home and talk to your parents and he did thank god and we found out what he had done is he had gone and parked his his suv by a lake because he was trying to figure out what to do because he was failing all his classes and he didn't want to tell us and you know i just had to sit down and tell him if you don't want to go to college, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden the alternative is not quite as bad as him being gone. No. <laughs> as my son, husband says to me many times, if you're willing to go and live in a van down by the river, you know, it's hardcore. If you don't want to do it, okay. It's okay. You just need to live and be happy. That's I've had to give up a lot of uh, fantasies. You know, when you're, you're a parent, you have a lot of fantasies about what your kids are going to be like. You think, oh, they're going to be fabulous. They're going to be so much better than me. They're going to have s- such a better life, you know, yeah. than I did. And this is how I relate to a lot of parents of kids who have developmental disabilities. Because when my we found out my son had a heart condition, you know, it just kind of shatters the myth of the perfect child. Eventually, your kid is going to, you know, poop all over himself or something, and you, he's not going to be the perfect child. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a very serious thing. You know, if, you have a, if you're a parent that has a child with autism, if you're a parent that has a child who stutters, it, it just kind of shatters your myth. And, and then and, you probably take some of the brunt on thinking that you're not a perfect parent because your right. kid's got this problem. Did I cause it? I mean, that's one of the big things that parents want to know is, did I cause it? And certainly I've gone through that. Did I cause his heart problem? I think I had one drink before I found out I was pregnant. Did that cause his heart problem? You know, did this cause his heart problem? And I found out it's probably genetic, but still, you know, you still don't know. And so... You still go through the blame game. Oh, yeah. I can still get in that place if I want to. I mean, my husband wasn't like that. That's another thing you really have to go through is understanding in your family, okay, how is everybody else dealing with this situation? And everybody's going to grieve on your own, on way. And if you can't accept it, then you're going to grow apart from your family. And that's hard. And fortunately, my husband and I and my son, we were able to stay together as a tighter group, even though they had a totally different way of grieving than I did. They, um, someone had donated uh, a a defibrillator to a school and put my son's name on it. So I went to this little ceremony for it. Well, my husband and son refused to go. They said, you know, we can't go. We can't do that in public. You know, they just don't want to grieve in public. You know, I just I had to go by myself and it was hard. But um, at the same time, they've done so much for me. I've been have have had times where I was just like a mess and they took care of me. So he died. I was hypomanic probably, you know, 
off and on for a really long time. And then I started getting depressed again because for a while I would, I didn't, I was tired of being in pain. So I didn't want to think about it anymore. I just decided, okay, I'm not going to feel anything for a while. I went through that situation and I spent a lot of time, you know, by myself. I've, I've probably, you know, really shrunk my circle of friends. Um, somebody that doesn't go out a lot or, you know, spends a lot of time mostly just with my family and my dogs. And I just, uh, I don't know. A lot of it has to do with lack of energy. Yeah. It's, you know, and motivation. And, and I, I really think that lack of energy and motivation is whatever is that chemical imbalances, whatever that miswiring or misfiring mm-hmm. is. And you cannot just pull yourself out of it. It's not something that no. it's you like, can't just get over it. <laughs> no, it's it's not. It's like quicksand. You need help. You need right. somebody to throw you a rope. And, right. and and people don't understand because you have all your limbs. You can speak. You can even laugh. You know. And so and and that's the way it was with my son. You know. You see all these kids who are bald because they've gone through chemo and everything, and everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, those poor kids," but. You don't see the kids who have a ticking time bomb inside of them because they look normal. They look like anybody else. And that's the way depression is sometimes, too, is because you force yourself to put one foot in front of the other and you just keep going. And and especially, I think, if you're bipolar, too, or bipolar, that you can laugh and joke and still feel horrible. You put on that face and people don't even realize what's going right. on. I, I and sometimes that. you just don't want you don't want to bother to explain it. When I tell people that I have a kid that died, they are just like, you know, they don't really want me to talk about it because they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. They feel so helpless and there's nothing they can do. Of course, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say except I'm sorry. And, you know, it doesn't I, I, matter. He's dead. I, there's I'm, nothing that can happen to bring him back. And. I kind of feel sorry for people that I get in their face and say, oh, yeah, I have two kids. One of them's dead. And they don't know what to say. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> well, that's your way of dealing. You, that that was yeah. your identity. Uh, I don't even actually like talking about my brother because yeah. I don't, I, I'm, I'm that weird way where I don't want somebody to feel uncomfortable. So I won't even mention right. that my brother existed so they don't put their foot in their mouth. And that's kind of a weird opposite effect. I don't know. I mean, I don't come up to people and say, hi, I have two kids. One is dead. Yeah. Um, if someone asks me how many kids I have, I'm going to tell them. Yeah. But I'm not going to necessarily volunteer the information. Have, have, do you feel like your brother's death has really affected you above and beyond the the illness he had? Sadly, I was writing him off and distancing myself from him well before his death. Yeah. Because he had just kind of thrown m- me and my entire family's life in just this chaotic roller coaster of hope and disappointment over and over again. Mm-hmm. I stopped returning his phone calls. I stopped contact with him because there was just nothing I could do. Anytime I would try to assist or help him, it would just turn out badly. So it was probably between six or seven years before his death, he was technically already dead to me. And, yeah. and I, I knew it was just a matter of time. 
uh, it did affect me, but I literally was going through my mourning before his death. And so yeah. when he finally did die, uh, it's a bad comparison, but it's like your, your grandfather who's 90 years old and you think, well, you know, it was bound to happen someday. But my brother was 32 when he died. Oh, gosh. Um, well, it's, yeah, I mean, that's a long, long grief process as opposed to my son who just blinked out, you know, I'm really, yeah, I'm really a, glad he wasn't right. there for me to say goodbye to because I'm just glad it happened so, so quickly that he didn't feel anything really. They're completely different situations right. when, you know, if, if, if you have a loved one that dies in a car wreck or your situation right. as compared to somebody that's dying of cancer over the years, or as I saw with my brother, just destroying himself because of mental illness, because of drug addiction, all those other things. There's huge difference between the two because one can grow to accept and the other ones it's just thrust upon you and there's mm -hmm. nothing you could have done not to say that you know oh one situation's worse than the other we all deal with it separately but your situation yeah. i think can really decimate somebody's life a lot harder just because well, I always say suffering is not a contest. No, no, <laughs> no, I love everybody that. Everybody suffers in their own way. <laughs> no, I, and thank you for saying that because <laughs> I, I feel like people start to get into some weird pissing match over, oh, my oh, life yeah. was harder than yours. And I'm like, exactly. why are we bragging about our tragedy here? Like, just Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, some people do use their tragedy to, you know, get attention. I mean... But, you know, you can see that say that about me. You know, I called you and said, hey, I've got this situation. But I just feel like it's really important for people to know that depression is not sadness. It is not sadness at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be sad about something. It takes a long time. I mean, it's not like I'm over my son's death. I can still get very, very upset about it. Yeah. It's nothing like depression. It, mm -hmm. Depression is... It's it's just like, uh, like you said, it's this dull ache. If you're in the middle of it, you just don't want to do anything. You know, when you're grieving, sometimes you don't want to do anything. And sometimes you feel really, you know, hopeless and things like that. But it is not like depression. Depression is just all about yourself. You know, it's what's going on inside you. Grief, a lot of times, you know, it's it's about a situation not a, about you personally and it's not a physical illness cool awesome well thank you so much for talking to me today oh you're welcome thank you and you All have right. a good one bye bye